You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is how technological leapfrogging can turbocharge Asia's economies. I am joined by several esteemed colleagues. I am joined by Anand Swaminathan. He's a senior partner and the leader of McKinsey's digital and analytics sector across Asia. I am joined by Nosher Kaka, senior partner out of India. He leads the global analytics practice for the firm, as well as our TMT practice globally. I am joined by Violet Chung. She is a partner out of Hong Kong and a leader in our digital and innovation and financial services across the region. And finally, Brand Carson is a partner out of Sydney who leads McKinsey Technology across Asia. Thank you for joining me. Before we dig into the subject at hand, would love just to hear some personal reflections from you. Just how has the last eight, nine months been? And, you know, tell us, you know, an interesting episode or a positive experience you've had over the last eight, nine months. Brant, do you want to kick us off? Uh, happy to. Look, I think the biggest learning has been the fact that we're able to get so much done remotely that I don't think we thought, and certainly I didn't think was possible before. And, and I think the, from a personal perspective, the, it's been a big unlock because being more at home and in Sydney uh, has enabled us to, uh, we actually got a dog. And uh, so that's been a, a big new pastime and something that, of course, the kids were supposed to do, but uh, has clearly become my responsibility. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. No share. Sort of a, my biggest learning uh, in the last nine months is dreams are sometimes best left as dreams. You know, as, as consultants, we often, at least for 25 years, I've dreamt, gosh, I would love to have spent more time on the ground at home with the family. And I think today, if you ask the family, it's kind of 50-50, we'd like Nosher back on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Uh, Violet. <laughs> Thanks, Oliver. Being able to spend more time at home. Um, I have two young daughters and, uh, you know, bedtime stories is now their favorite with mommy. It used to be a grandparent's role, but uh, now they have to have mommy's bedtime story before they go to bed. So it's been quite sweet. Excellent. And last but not least, Anand. I think over the last several months, Oliver, frankly, the connectivity around the world while we've been locked down, I've actually personally taken even more effort to say, how can I connect to family and friends everywhere using technology and no longer thinking that a physical presence is what's needed. So whether it's talking to my grandmother in India, much more often now on video, because we all know that's just the way we interact instead of being able to see her as often as I used to be able to, or it's talking to my parents as they're moving around and as they're traveling. It has been a great way to be connected and be frankly, even more inclusive with family around the world. Exactly. So thank you. Thank you all for, uh, for, for doing that. To me, the takeaway is that whilst it is, has been tough, there, there are some 
glimmers of hope and there are some positive learnings that we've had during this period as well. So thank, thank you for sharing those. Listen, let's dig into the topic at hand, which is technological leapfrogging and how that can turbocharge Asia's economies. I'm going to ask you, Norshare, to give us a little bit of a background of this because you have led the research work that we've done on this over the last six, 12 months. So can you give us that background, uh, Norshare? Sure. So, Oliver, the research you referred to is the future of uh, technology as Future of Asia, the technology uh, module of that. And what we found there is actually three or four areas we think that are absolutely ripe for leapfrogging from an Asian perspective. First is actually everything to do around using digital AI around consumers. We have the youngest and possibly the largest consumer body that is actually incredibly digital savvy in our region. And the application of these technologies to actually improve convenience, experience, pricing, everything has been, frankly, leapfrogging around the world. I think Anand, I, Brand, all of us work in this region. We would absolutely say that what we see working in Asia is actually truly at the cutting edge when it comes to consumer uh, personalization demand and so on. Uh, The second area is actually to take a completely other end of the spectrum is manufacturing. Uh, We think we have already in Asia some of the largest manufacturing bases in the world and actually digitizing those manufacturing bases and leapfrogging on productivity, scale and so on is incredible. Um, One thing that I would actually reference, I mean, I was incredibly surprised that we did an entire manufacturing operations transformation right through till August of this year without anyone from the team actually visiting the plant. And that is the power of using digital in transforming uh, operations remotely. The third is services. We know 30% of the world's technology services comes out of Asia. And as you look at the demand going forward, I mean, one of the things we got completely wrong at the start of the pandemic was we all predicted that tech spending would actually go down or at least would pause. Surprise, surprise, it's rebounded and rebounded much faster than we've ever seen. And some of these are in the heart of actually changing the way services are deployed across the world. And the last, possibly the most important one for our planet is climate change. And I think Asia has a huge, huge opportunity in leading the world on sustainability and energy use. I think these would be the four I would call out. Excellent. Thank you, Norshare. And we're going to come back to each of those four uh, a little bit later in the conversation. But I want to take us back to pre-COVID for a second. And let me ask you, uh, Brandt, you know, can you give us a little bit, what was the state of play of technological advances in Asia prior to COVID? Well, it's actually quite interesting because when we started this work, I think we all had an inkling that uh, Asia was on an upward trajectory. But as we looked at the facts, we actually saw that you know, Asia had been over the past decade deepening tech capabilities such that we'd gone from having zero back in 2010, zero companies in the top 10 uh, globally to having now four out of the top 10 companies by revenue. We also have had kind of 87% of the growth in patents are all in Asia. And now we see that the kind of global company revenue related to technology has also increased by another 10 percentage points. So what we're seeing even coming into COVID is actually a lot of acceleration, a lot of investment in technology, especially in Asia. And if we look at Asia is not one country, you know, we can argue it's even more than one region in itself. But are there any big differences that you would highlight, Brent? Yes. I mean, there's no question that if you think about probably four different regions, one of them being, look, in, in greater China, there's no question that, that, that they produce a disproportionate number of the patents. 
you know, of the top four technology companies that are in the top 10, three out of the four are all from China. So there's a, there's certainly a, a big difference there. I think the other one is India and the other emerging parts of emerging Asia, they are also, as Noshir was talking earlier about the explosion in services, they've always been you know, disproportionately capturing some of that value and on a real trajectory as well. Thank you. And Anand, you also have, you, you've just moved to the region from Silicon Valley, from California. How does the rest of the world view Asia and technology? Yeah, I think, Oliver, when we think about technology, there's a few factors we always look at. We, we talk about adoption and usage of technology. What is fascinating that as I moved and I transitioned into Asia and starting to spend much more time here, I was quite fascinated by the adoption and usage. So the fact that there are hundreds of millions of users for any and all technology capabilities and services. So whether it's in e-commerce, the fact that the internet usage and driving things through e-com, there are hundreds of millions of users at scale and using it every single day for every dimension. So even if we think you know, e-commerce and spending, the fact that by pre-COVID, it was already accounting for over 3% of Asia's GDP. This meant that the adoption was already there with technology in the region, and it was actually rapidly rising. And in fact, if we compare it back to the United States, the total e-commerce volume is projected to reach 1.4 trillion in 2020. So this year, which is actually triple the volume in the United States. So I think this adoption usage, it's been very impressive to see in the region. And frankly, that's why the leapfrog is really possible. Thank you. I'm going to go to Violet. Violet, you're based in Hong Kong. Give us a little bit of a picture of what is happening on the ground in Hong Kong. And then again, let's stay to pre-COVID. We'll get to what's been happening recently. But What's happening on the ground in Hong Kong? Yeah, so I would say, you know, in Greater China, you know, what you see pre-COVID, essentially the uh, Greater China has one of the highest adoption in terms of digital means, right? So if you look at uh, mainland China, for example, 74% of the population is considered digital savvy, right? Hong Kong is close to 90. Taiwan is close to 90 as well, right? So on average, uh, individual has 1.4 smartphone. Right. So that, that gives you a bit of a picture of uh, sort of the mobile led mobile first. The second thing I would say is that, you know, uh, if you look at Greater China, it's seen as the emergence of, the, I guess, uh, Silicon Valley 2.0. Right. People are looking for Greater China as inspiration for innovation. Right. So I think my colleague Brand uh, earlier mentioned that, you know, three out of the 10 highest valued companies are, are actually based in uh, based in China. So you see a lot of emergence of excitement. Right. You also see a lot of labor, uh, especially on technology capability uh, on this front. So it's very, very exciting on the ground where, you know, this is essentially very close to our everyday life. Thank you. Now. We've heard about the large companies. Let's spend a minute at the other end of the spectrum, the startups and the growth of those startups. Uh, who would like to comment on kind of that, that ecosystem? Oliver, we've seen an incredible startup ecosystem in many of the geographies emerge, right? And I think these companies are upending much of our established norms and just, you know, mindsets. I'll give you one example. Um, if you look at the largest online shampoo brand in a country like India, it's probably not a brand that any of us have heard, 
Now, if you take a category, and this is why I go back to one of our first leapfrogging opportunities on consumer, right? We go back and we think about for as long as we've grown up, we knew the brands of shampoo that we would actually have. And for an online unknown uh, sort of brand to come up and be the number one brand in a country is just incredible, right? And so you see a raft of these companies coming up and launching almost entirely online. Of course, some of them, many of the successful ones have an online and offline business as well. But you see them innovating much faster. You see them coming up with new offerings. You see them in creating new products and services that we never did. And, you know, a few years ago, at least in India, we had created a ambition of 10,000 startups, which at that time, many of us were thought was virtually impossible. And today, I think we probably have crossed that number. So maybe I could just add a comment on this, Oliver, because what I find fascinating, especially again, coming from Silicon Valley, where we see early and growth stage companies is a, is a part of everyday life. As I've absorbed what's happening here in Asia, I find it fascinating that, you know, China, as an example, is home to 26% of all the world's unicorns, right? That is a significant portion concentrated in, in one geography. And that's actually very true as you, we start to look at the greater Asia region to say there is a culture of innovation and there's a culture of acceleration in terms of what technology can really do. And we're seeing this manifest with the early and growth stage companies and the startup ecosystem. And it's creating some of the most valued companies on the planet housed right here in Asia and creating that value for consumers, but also creating that value for businesses in the region. Thank you. Excellent. Listen, let's shift now. And I want to go back to some of the things that Northshire teed up right up front, some of these opportunities. And I think so the, the, the overarching question is, what are some of those most important, significant technological opportunities that you see in Asia? And I think, Northshire, you already teed up four of them. So why don't we start with the first one, which I, I think you said it was more around reimagining the consumer experience and the opportunities that come from that. Who wants to elaborate a little bit on what, what that means in practice? Yeah, happy to. I mean, I think that what we find is in the reimagining of the customer experience, there were three big things that we saw. I mean, clearly, and this is, of course, accelerated with COVID, but in terms of digital buying channels, just digitization of things like health and the number of startups or companies that have shifted to be able to offer more remote services uh, that are now much more accessible. The second thing are just kind of cross-sector platforms that continue to expand the consumer offerings. And this is actually what Anand was just talking about. You have different companies like an Alibaba who have continued to expand out the full set of offerings and certainly through COVID, uh, you know, doubled down in areas such as Ding Talk and kind of remote collaboration. And then you've got digitizing end-to-end value change, which is something that's been happening for quite a lot in time, certainly in financial services for a number of years. But now you see, especially in Asia, where we've got a lot of uh, e-commerce players that are really digitizing those end-to-end chains even further. Let me stay focused on this for a second here. Violet, you spend quite a bit of time in financial services, I believe. So what is the, A, the underlying drivers for why this is happening? And what can we expect going forward in this uh, subsector? 
Thank you, Oliver. So I would say there's a few things that we're observing. I think, especially in Greater China, we see that essentially in the past, the financial institutions、um, bank as a lead hasn't been working too hard on pleasing their customers. So what you see is attackers like Alibaba and Tencent, who are very, very consumer centric, and essentially they have you know customer at, at its core as they think about all their value proposition. They essentially have disrupted the value chain. In a big way, right? They have disrupted the service model in a big way. Now I can say any Chinese consumer who are digitally savvy, which is you know, as I mentioned,、uh, close to seventy four percent of of us, cannot leave Alibaba's system or Tencent's system ecosystem on a daily basis. Everywhere we go, entertainment we use, education we use, you know, even the taxi rides that we do we we use, it's all surrounded by their ecosystem. Right, so they really, truly have helped us reimagining the experience from consumer standpoint. They also made the pain points of traditionally how we interact with banks much, much more seamless. So it's really at your service, customer mass customization at your need. Right,、uh, tailoring、uh, tailoring the product to every single subsegment. So they've really taken this reimagining to the next level of degree. Now, what does that mean for traditional financial institutions? They got to change. And so, in the past, you know, what we've seen is that, especially with COVID, there's been a fundamental shift on how traditional financial institutions has been investing in their capability. There's a fundamental shift on how they're doubling down on online capability and customer management. So one of the banks I've worked with, they mentioned that essentially, you know, for their credit card, in the past they spent eighty percent of the energy on offline merchants and offline transactions. Now it's the other way around: eighty percent online, twenty percent offline. So it, it tells you a little bit of how this has really changed the industry in a very fundamental way. Given what has happened in the last week, I also have to ask you: you know, the AliPay IPO that was halted. What what does this mean to the business opportunity? You know, is it going to slow down, or how does it change? So, I think with the end situation in the past two weeks, what this will mean is that in the past, the Chinese regulators has been quite open on how fintechs develop their capability. Going forward, I think the regulators are going to start treating that these fintech firms like traditional firms. Right, it's a much more controlled risk environment, and they have to go back to the fundamentals of、uh, doing financial services. What this means for the traditional financial services like banks is that they essentially have another two to three years time to be better and get better at managing their customer and the core capability around that. Right. So I think what the regulator is saying is that you know now essentially we're still want the underbanked to be banked, but in a much more controlled way. The banks, you better get better at managing your customers and servicing them. So I think this is actually better in terms of the overall health of the financial industry. And、uh, I think at the end, you know, essentially regulators still want to see a, a healthier,、uh, high growth, but you know, well controlled, well serviced customer. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you for that, Violet. So, one topic here is reimagining the consumer journey, so to speak. 
Unless anybody has any other thoughts on that topic, I want to shift us to the, the next one that Norshare mentioned, which is turning manufacturing strength into technology advances. You want to take that one, uh, Anand? Yeah, I think this is actually quite an intriguing area in that manufacturing in Asia has a type of scale that's quite impressive. And, and it, there's a lot of learnings that come with that. Now, when we take that scale and the learnings from manufacturing here in the region and couple that with what the role of technology is to drive things such as automation, to drive things such as changing the way we have data and insights in how we do our manufacturing and our capabilities there, it actually becomes an interesting topic because fundamentally technology advances in manufacturing space or heavy industry space means we can serve more customers produce more products and services and actually beat the time to market. And that's where the crux of the technology advances will be in Asia that's already happening today. The fact that we've got digitization in plants allows for more product at a faster space to be able to reach more customers in record time. And I think this is what we will see as the clock speed of innovation of technology advances in manufacturing and digitization of end-to-end -end processes that happen in the region. It's going to allow for an acceleration overall in how we serve our customers as well. Oliver, I want to pick up just on what uh, one of the points that Anand made, which is, you know, for a long time, when we looked at technology in manufacturing, we over-indexed on automation as, as one lever, right? And what I see happening increasingly is that we are now actually pulling on another lever, which is, in my opinion, even more important or even more impactful, which is insight and decision-making. So to give you an example, right? As we start going back to this plant I talked about, right? If you look at a plant, even a process plant or a discrete plant, you make thousands of decisions on the shop floor every day. Each of those decisions actually has an impact on yield, energy, throughput, quality, et cetera. This one plant actually produces one of the largest number of glass vials in the world, right? Both for vaccines and for perfumes and so on. And uh, two of our companies, uh, Quantum Black, Element AI, we used to actually look at anomaly detection. Because, for example, uh, when you look at a glass vial, to a human eye, you can't really detect a bubble or a crack or a splinter. Um, but interestingly, to a reasonably high-powered camera in the right lighting, you can actually see that in the thousands, right? And suddenly you start correlating what was a defect that you saw at the end of the line to a small change you made in either furnace temperature or forehead hearth or anything else. And suddenly you dramatically improve yield, energy, throughput, quality, cost, everything. And that's the, the application of decision science to manufacturing is the piece I'm most excited with because that can order of magnitude improve, you know, output, throughput, quality, and retain jobs as well. Thank you. That, listen, I love that, Norshare. I'm going to go to, to Brand because I know you spent a lot of time, Brand, thinking about the core tech that is behind this, as well as the change management challenge that lies in moving from the old to the new. So I would love for you to comment a little bit on that, please. Yeah, happy to, Oliver. Look, I think you put your finger on something that's just absolutely crucially difficult. What Noshir was just describing 
is exactly the way that kind of advanced analytics and data can be increasingly leveraged. The challenge is actually that in many cases, some of our larger companies actually really struggle to get the data together to be able to make those decisions. And a big challenge is that it's stored across many different systems. And what they're trying to do is figure out how they can consolidate them in a logical way. And so the the biggest thing that we're encouraging companies to be very thoughtful about is not embark on these large uh, kind of seemingly never-ending journeys to consolidate and just kind of pool all the data together and consolidate systems into one, but to do it thinking very specifically about the analytical insights and decisions you're trying to drive, which is what I love about NoShare's example right there. And so the key is then from a change management point of view and, and for your organization, you want to be able to layer on here are the most critical decisions and then create your roadmap from a core technology perspective to be very much in alignment with that. So you're always delivering kind of real value to the organization. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, uh, Anand? The complexity of core tech transformations is what Brand's highlighting, but the outcome and the impact that we can actually achieve through core tech transformations is really where the value ends up being, right? I think what we can do in manufacturing, there are a significant number of applications and infrastructure associated here that we have to reimagine, whether it's reimagining for efficiency and effectiveness of those platforms, whether it's reimagining for new uses and new sources of value that wouldn't be done before. And frankly, whether we have to reimagine the way in which technology will become far more modular in the future state. And so this is the reimagination with core tech that we're having to do now. And I think in sectors like manufacturing, it's playing a significant value in fundamentally changing the efficiency and effectiveness of those organizations if they undergo the core tech transformation. Thank you. So I'm going to move us on to the third opportunity. The first one, reimagining consumer experience. The second one was turning manufacturing strengths into technology advances. And I think the third one that Norsher mentioned right at the start was expanding business technology services. I know this is an area you spend quite a lot of time thinking about, Norsher. So why don't you elaborate on that, please? So, and of course, Anand is the one who actually crafted it for one of the most successful players, so he should say it as well. But when we started in April, we, you know, it, with, with this first pandemic, we actually, as I said earlier, we thought that tech services spending was going to collapse. Interestingly, if you look at the quarter two results of most companies, it's actually rebounded and most of the companies are are showing record order books. And we're seeing opportunities in four primary areas. Number one, we're seeing opportunities across any vertical stack. So for example, Brand talked earlier about telehealth or remote you know, remote patient management in healthcare. Or if you think in retail, you think store of the future. With contactless coming in, we're seeing dark stores emerging. What is the concept of a dark store, right? In insurance, how do you do B2B selling without actually meeting your customer? How do you reimagine B2B selling? Or in telcos, where we are seeing all our operators coming up and saying, okay, how do I build new businesses with our LEAP offering? How do we build completely new things enabled by IoT connectivity and so on? So we're seeing a whole range of, uh, of vertical offerings. On the base of it, as Brand said, we're seeing this massive horizontal offerings, whether it was tech-enabled supply chain, cloud migration, 
this entire cybersecurity has become a huge, huge, huge area to think about. That's the second one. The third, we're seeing product engineering. So as we described earlier, a number of clients are now going and combining services, products, new attributes, new features, bundling this together as Violet described in the ecosystems in China and creating an entire new productized services battlefield that, that we've seen. And finally, I should point out governments have been central to actually using technology and services in combating COVID. If you look at some of the work that's been done in Asia to so far combat or stop the spreading of COVID, some of these governments have been so, pro, so progressive that they can actually predict plus or minus 10% the number of patients into a hospital for COVID on a given day. Right. And that's been hugely helpful to managing the supply chain of patients, doctors, medicines and so on. So if you look across those four stacks vertically on many across virtually every industry, horizontally across three at least very big areas of cybersecurity, cloud migration and supply chain resilience, you look at specifically on product engineering and new product creation. And you think about government enablement across a whole range of services, be they social or battling COVID. Maybe just picking up, no sure where you were leaving off. I think what is really exciting and was a big learning as we as we did, we kind of ran the numbers and really thought this through is what an opportunity there is in particular for Asia on this front. Because if you think about it, we're going to see, you know, 70, 80% growth in services and digital services. And if you think about what no sure just talked about, some of the different horizontals in particular Asia is very well set up to, to actually have the talent bases. I mean, the fact that, frankly, three quarters of all STEM graduates come from Asia today, um, you know, the fact that, the fact that you know, we do have such, such a large number of these big technology companies and governments are really investing you know, in, in people and universities, I think that is something that is going to very much uh, make Asia a very attractive location. The other thing that I would just add on is, the other topic that is is interesting in this in, in the set of horizontals is around legacy modernization. In fact, a fifth of the 550 billion of services spend that we expect is actually in legacy modernization around core technology. And I actually think that this is an imperative across certainly all large and existing companies, and it requires a pretty broad set of skills to be able to do it. And so I do think that you know, as much as there is continued demand for these skills, it will absolutely continue. And this will continue to be probably an escalating priority for companies, particularly as they, as Anna was talking about, reimagine what their core should look like. Got it. Thank you. I'm going to shift us to the fourth opportunity that you talked about, which was being at the forefront of the energy transition. I don't know who wants to pick up on that one. I'm happy to make a couple couple comments on that, Oliver. I, I think in in the energy space, right? Here's here's fundamentally what we're we're seeing. We understand that both consumption of energy as well as production of energy is going to be rewritten. The way in which we are uh, operating here, in terms of in Asia, but also frankly globally demand is just increasing rapidly. So what this means is what is the role that technology can fundamentally play in driving, once again, the infrastructure that's needed to be optimized, to be efficient, and to be able to get access 
to the energy uh, needs uh, and to the consumption needs in just more of an effective manner. But it also means what do we have to do to reinvent new sources of energy? So what is technology then doing to create the right renewable energy sources? How should we be thinking through this? And what should we be thinking about? Again, production of renewable energy sources here in Asia, and also then scaling that rapidly given the demand is not going to be shrinking anytime soon. Now, you know, Asian countries, right, they lead in market share in, in a few types of renewable energy, which is actually very impressive. So when you look at solar, when you look at wind, when you look at hydrogen or you look at biofuels, we actually have in Asia the highest share of production of these types of energy sources. So immediately it triggers the thought, great, if we've got those sources, how do we drive scale using technology and, and analytics? But also, how do we drive distribution of that to the different regions, to the different populations, especially where we're seeing the outcome? But we need to be doing all of this with climate risk in mind, right? What is happening from a planet perspective and how do we want to lead the charge? And Norsher had a great point early on that we, in Asia, we have the opportunity to reframe the discussion around climate risk using technology as the enabler to drive some of that change. How do we think about that and how do we scale that right here in the region? And also because Asia just has huge needs for future investments and in all kinds of infrastructure. So how do you actually think about making that more climate resilient and, and even contributing in a positive way to reducing CO2? Absolutely. Listen, I'm going to shift us into a different question now, which is what are some of the attributes that companies need to achieve success? You know, now in the, I'm not sure we can call it post-COVID, but at least in the next normal. So what are some of those attributes? Uh, who wants to kick off that, uh, that conversation? I'm happy to go first, Oliver. I, I think one of the core attributes in the post-COVID world has got to be speed at which organizations, at which governments fundamentally drive technology adoption and technology transformations. We need people to be skilled in that, and we need to be applying this, whether it's to change the way we think about business models, whether it's the way we think about giving access to technology to the population in the region, we have to move at speed. It's no longer about being you know, very contemplative about how should we think about technology? Where might we want to deploy? It's everywhere and it needs to be there now. So I think speed isn't going to be the name of the game. Yeah. And I think on the speed front, just to, just to take that one step further on and I mean, or through COVID, it forced organizations at all levels to make decisions far faster. And part of that has forced organizations to behave in much more agile ways, whether it was initially intended uh, or not. And I think organizations are starting to see the benefit of that. And, and I think the real question is going to be that the successful companies are going to harness this energy, harness the rapidity of decision making, the quality of decisions that can be made at all levels to allow for more autonomy and more decentralization. And the companies that take advantage of that and empower their employees are going to be some of the ones that will come out and, and through the pandemic as kind of changed companies and some of the more successful ones. Got it. So topic number one, speed. 
What, what else do companies need to do or need to, uh, to have? Oliver, I'd go back to a piece of research we did two years ago almost, uh, and I think the numbers haven't changed uh, that much. And the numbers are 9017 2, 9017 and 2. Uh, so the challenge with as you think about how do we get scale, speed, and adoption in companies. When you talk to the CXOs, boards, whatever management teams of these companies, 90 plus percent of them will say technology and digital is really going to reshape my future of the industry, company, et cetera. That's never the problem. The problem comes in the 17 and two. So when we ask that same set of people, CEOs, CXOs, uh, have you moved management and resources in line with that ambition or that aspiration? Only 17% said, yes, we have. So in other words, there's a huge gap between what you know is going to happen and is important versus the actual act of even just allocating capital and management to that action. And the 2% obviously is the ones that actually succeed in scaling this. It's between 2 and 5% today. So if you want to start changing this, uh, and Anand has been the author of this wonderful piece of research we've put out, which is around the five attributes you need. So number one, you have to know what you're looking for. In other words, you need the strategy of where value creation is. Go back to the example of manufacturing and going for insight as opposed to automation in Asia, which is making the biggest difference. But you need four sets of capabilities. You absolutely need the Cortec platform. You absolutely need data. You need talent. And that actually is typically the breaking point for most organizations. And you need a method. You need a process, whether you call it agile or something else. You need a process by which you actually execute this across the organization. And lastly is you need a way to institutionalize this across the company in an execution manner that is relentless. These are the five attributes. In fact, Anand was the author of this. Maybe, Anand, you want to add to this? These attributes are going to be so essential to ensure that we understand what the future really holds. I, I think, Nosha, you've said it great. And my, my view is we need to embrace it now. We, we don't have the time to think through this uh, for too much longer. And we need to embrace now and actually, frankly, activate. So that's what I'd close with on that. Violet, your thoughts on this question? I completely agree with what Nosher and uh, Anand said. The other thing I would add is essentially corporations need to acquire a new set of skills called collaboration, right? So collaboration or partnership is not just, you know, having a bunch of BDs going out there and trying to sell their stuff through channels. Because that's at least from where I come from, uh, the financial institutions, that's how they thought about collaboration and partnership. A new way of uh, a partnership actually requires one to think about what is my positioning in the value chain and what are the values to be captured? Hence, who do I need to work with and what do I offer so that it's a win-win for myself and also for my partners and also for the consumer, right? It requires a lot more deeper thinking. It requires a very different type of skill set. That's not just, you know, signing an MOU. Right. It actually requires one to understand and get deep into the partner's operating model and be able to act quite agilely. And so that you find sort of a win-win-win solution for all parties. That I think, at least, you know, for many financial traditional uh, institutions, that requires a very new way of working, a new way of thinking about their organization. And just building on what I heard you all speaking about earlier, you know, Violet, it also sounds like it requires 
a much larger ecosystem of players that you're collaborating with. That's completely correct. I think uh, you hit on a very important point, Oliver. I think if we traditionally how at least uh, financial uh, institutions have thought about ecosystem, it's very much, you know, I partner with folks who can give me customers, right? So they think of partners as channels and a new way of working you got to break that to a lot deeper and you need different type partners. There's data partners, there's marketing partners, there are partners that you could do product innovations with. There's partners that you could trial with, you know, uh, adjacent verticals that you could add value to your customers. There's partners on on the middle platform. There's partners on the uh, core tech platform, so on and so forth. So you got to think of partnership in a much more granular pieces to really think about, uh, again, the win-win-win proposition. Excellent. Thank you. I want to, to, to round us out. This has been a fascinating conversation. My takeaway is big opportunities for technological leapfrogging, especially in Asia, if I'm allowed to say it that bluntly, because we have an underlying unmet need and demand from in many different verticals from the consumers. That, that, that's what's driving, or driving this, amongst other things. But guys, I want to end this, uh, and I want to ask each of you the same question, which is, what one piece of advice do you have for the senior executives that are listening to this podcast? The one sentence of advice that you have for each of the, uh, the listeners. Sure. Uh, the one piece of advice I would give is, act now, fight for talents. Where? Brent. I would say now is the time to be bold and to look for the leapfrog opportunities and be decisive and use this time to invest in your technology. Very good. Anand. I believe it's extremely important to invest in talent in addition to acquiring talent. And it's also important to identify where technology fundamentally can play a role in every dimension of what every organization has as their core business. Thank you. No, sure. That talent point starts with you. When was the last time you took your course? Wonderful. And we're going to let those be the final words from our four panelists here. Thank you so much to all four of you. I hope you had an interesting time listening to, uh, to this podcast. Take care and have a great day. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.